trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, let's get things going and welcome to the show. This is where we gather to revel in wrong think. Not just because it's wrong, but because, hey, somebody's got to stand up for, for what's right. If not you, then who? If not now, then when? I know this is a far cry from uh, origi- the original slogan I had, which was, can somebody else do this? <laughs> but you know what? Turns out it's actually kind of a lot of fun. Anyhow, if you're a first-time listener, welcome. We've got a lot of great stuff to talk about, hopefully, at the end of this uh, conversation. I know it's kind of one-sided, but at the end of the uh, program, you'll hopefully have a little bit better understanding of who you are, what you stand for, as well as some of the uh, current events going on around us. But uh, more importantly... We'll be questioning some of the narratives that are being sent our way. And, and the more I look around, the more I realize it's, it's a matter of you have to be able to counter what very experienced, very skilled propagandists are putting out there for us to believe. And thankfully, I have some really wonderful resources for wrong thinkers that I'm able to draw from on a daily basis. I actually have a link on my face or actually on my website, the Brianhideshow.com which is dedicated to resources for wrong thinkers. So if this is uh, something that uh, you're a little curious about, you want to see, you know, well, uh, how far can we stray from the official narrative? You'd be surprised. I, I heard it likened to, and I, I really like the uh, analogy of it's, it's a prison cell that is not locked. It's a prison cell in your mind. And people only stay in there because they just don't stop to realize I could get up and walk out of here any time that I want to. My goal is whatever direction you want to go to at least get you to walk through that door, think for yourself, and then you decide. You get to choose and you get to weigh and judge, you know, what to, what is it that matters most? Because if you're taking your cues from uh, what uh, my friend Paul Rosenberg refers to as the great ephemera machine, which keeps us focused on all the little details of things that don't really matter. Chances are pretty good you're going to be misled at some level. In fact, I want to start with, uh, I'd like to start with a commentary from Paul Rosenberg that uh, this landed in my email box today. Kind of a surprise bonus. I've subscribed to his Free Man's Perspective newsletter, man, for years. I've been getting the, the email for at least the last five or six years, and, and I've been reading him a lot longer, probably closer to 10 years. I really like his take on the world. This is a pretty short little essay, but it's a word we need to make sense of this moment. And the reason we need to make sense of it is because it will make it a lot easier for us to understand exactly what has been stolen from us over the course of this past year. Paul Rosenberg says this past year has been a mass confusion of fear, misinformation, cover ups, tyranny, crazed, true believers and more. He says making sense of it has been difficult. And even though of us, those of us who try to do so professionally have come up short. But he said, this morning, the word we've needed rolled through my mind as I was waking up. And that word is scope. Now, he says, please bear with me as I explain. He says, there's a paraphrase of Aristotle that I love, and it's Aristotle's definition of happiness. 
Quote, the exercise of vital powers along lines of excellence in a life affording them scope. Now, he says there's a tremendous amount that can be unpacked from that short passage. And he says, I suggest you spend some time with it. But it's, it's that last phrase that's so crucial to us now, a life affording scope. And Paul Rosenberg says that is what's been stolen from us over the past year. And it's far more important than most of us have understood. He says to limit the scope of human action, the scope of human will is to limit our ultimate assets, which are intelligence, self-reflection and creativity. Because without them, we sink back to an animal existence, because those are precisely the things that we have and animals lacked lack rather. He says there's no greater crime than the mass restriction of of scope to oppress talent is to impoverish billions of humans yet unborn. So when it comes to the crushing of scope, he says what we've seen since early 2020 has been the suppression of scope. Now, supposedly it was for our own good, but only the the terrified really believe that even the high priest of restriction, Dr. Fauci, started out by saying that masks were unnecessary and that the necessary restriction was just 15 days to flatten the curve. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, bear in mind, political power is exercised with mass restrictions of human scope. Enforcement, regulation and the rest are just other words for restriction. He says, I'm not going to list the action of people who worked for years to gain political power, then jumped at the opportunity to use it. He says, what matters more is to understand that power holders will take advantage of our opportunities to limit our scope. That's what power does. And that's precisely what's happened over the past year. Our scope has been progressively reduced to the point of lunacy, and it's brought us downward from a proper human existence and toward the life of farm animals. I don't know. I want to give you a minute to kind of think about that for a second. That does that does that ring true to you? It really does to me. And I I'm very careful not to frame things purely in partisan terms. Well, you know, since the Democrats took power, this is all we've seen. But can we at least agree that when the Democratic Party or at least its leadership came back into power following this last election? There have been unprecedented moves to consolidate that power and to consolidate control over the rest of us. And the speed with which they are working to to maintain their control and to make sure that none of us ever gets close to those levers of power again, it's simply breathtaking. I have to wonder if one of the reasons is um, the, you look at the numbers of the election and it was a pretty evenly divided one. I'm, I'm not even taking into account any potential uh, fraud or any potential hijinks, even though I think there is plenty of reason to be asking questions about those things. But they clearly they being the people in power clearly have an understanding that we're catching on to their lust to dominate us. The citizenry is is getting fed up. I mean, just today, the president announced, well, I'm going to have these executive orders that will implement gun control things to make us safer. We know that is the biggest load of horse apples to come down the highway in a long time. That is such a bunch of garbage. It's all about the powerful trying to make sure that we have some pretext by which we can disarm anybody who might 
have the temerity to say no to what we're telling them to do. You cannot oppress a people who still retain the right to keep and bear arms. Oh, I know. I've heard the lectures. Well, now, we don't have, you know, stealth bombers, and we don't have nukes, and we don't have submarines and tanks, and and it's true. We don't. But even those who have them understand there are limitations to how far they can go in oppressing a people. And, and I, I, don't, I don't say this because it's, it's a fun thing to say, but I think it needs to be acknowledged. If you really are serious about um, putting people into a state of submission, you better have the resources to put a guy with a rifle on every single street corner possible. That's what it comes down to. You have to be able to individually compel people to obey you. And an armed populace makes that impossible. And again, you think, well, now again, they've got all they've got all the technology. They've got all the massive weapons on their side, the drones and so forth. It doesn't matter. Look at what's happened in Iraq. Look at what happened in Afghanistan and and ask yourself, you know, could those things have have been escalated to the point that uh, they actually had control of those regions? And the answer is yes, it could have, but it only could have happened by massacring civilians and massacring the people to the point that it's very clear who has lost the moral high ground. And the people who are trying to dislodge a murderous um, invader or oppressor are the ones who hold that moral high ground. So I'm not wishing for bloodshed. I feel as though we are being steered towards, um, I feel like we're being steered towards a bloody conflict. This doesn't please me. It doesn't bring me any satisfaction. I don't want to thump my chest and say, bring it on, bring it on. Because I think we all will lose people that we very dearly love. But I'm also not the kind of guy who's going to get worked up over, um, you know, the latest presidential pronouncements. And I'll tell you why. He's not a legislature. He can't make law. So if if the the guy with the the faltering uh, uh, mental faculties uh, wants to put some words on paper, hey, go ahead, Joe. Come on, man. Do it if it makes you feel better. But it's just words on paper. And it's nothing that uh, is going to have any impact impact on how I live my life. So, you know, do what you got to do. But if you think people are going to just roll over and go along with it, probably not. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, some great insights on enduring the tyranny of the current political majority. Stick around. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out to my sponsors. I would like to ring the bell, as it were, for pure-light.com. These are the most amazing light bulbs in that they will do the same thing that you can do with a $1,000 air purifying machine, remove odors and destroy uh, you know, viruses and germs and pathogens and, and things that you don't want you know, floating around, being breathed in and out of your body. And you can go to the website, which there's a link to it in the show notes at the com, pure-light.com. But these are light bulbs. Seriously. it's I, I know. You should really check it out. Don't just dismiss it out of hand. See for yourself. But uh, you got a smelly dog. You put one of these up in the area where the dog lives. And guess what? The smell 
goes away. Pretty fascinating stuff. Also, HSLAmmo.com. That would be my friend Spencer Worthington. And we want to give a shout-out to MonticelloCollege.org. Links to all of these businesses in the sponsor links in the show notes. Okay, so I, I pride myself on not getting all caught up in partisan stuff or being a little too vehement or sounding too militant. And I think I may have just failed miserably in the first portion of today's show. So, so much for, oh, he's so diplomatic and, you know, he never seems to get riled. Some, some days it feels like the stakes are a little bit higher. This is one of those days. But I want to share with you a commentary from Judge Andrew Napolitano. This is published in the Washington Times. And the title is Enduring the Tyranny of the Democrats Majority. Now, before I go any further, I want to make really clear. That tyranny is not strictly limited to Democrats. And the Republicans have been guilty of plenty of, of, uh, of tyranny when they were the majority in Washington, D.C. But um, following Trump's election in 2016, I remember a good friend of mine, Jason, telling me, people are so mad. He says, you watch what happens the next time the Democrats uh, reclaim the White House or the next time they get control of that government power. They're going to lock things down to make sure that no one else will ever be able to access that power again. And it turns out his words were very prophetic. And they were right on the money. That's what we're seeing today. So with that context and understanding, this is not just laying all of this at the feet of the Democrats. They just happen to be the uh, power seekers and opportunists who are in power right now. But the Republican counterparts have done much the same thing as well. The lesson here is do not put too much trust in government or you will find that people will abuse it. Here's what Judge Andrew Napolitano points out. The majority will take whatever it wants from the minority that cherishes limited government. He starts with a quote from Reverend Mather Blies. This is from back in the 1700s. Which is better, to be ruled by one tyrant 3,000 miles away or 3,000 tyrants one mile away? Judge Napolitano says, does it really matter if the instrument curtailing liberty is a monarch or a popularly elected legislature? This conundrum, along with the witty version of it put to a Boston crowd in 1775 by the little-known colonial-era preacher with the famous uncle, Cotton Mather, addresses the age-old question of whether liberty can survive in a democracy. Now, Blyse was a loyalist who, along with one-third of the American adult white male population in 1776, opposed the American Revolution and favored continued governance by Great Britain. He didn't fight for the king or agitate against George Washington's troops. He merely warned of the dangers of too much democracy. Now, Judge Napolitano says no liberty-minded thinker I know of today argues in favor of a hereditary monarchy. But many of us are fearful of an out-of-control hybrid democracy, which is what we have in America today. He says, I say hybrid because there remain in our federal structure a few safeguards against the runaway, against runaway democracy, such as the equal state representation in the Senate, the Electoral College, the state control of federal elections, and life-tenured federal judges and justices. Of course, the Senate is, or the Senate as originally crafted, did not consist of popularly elected senators. Rather, they were appointed by state legislatures to represent the sovereign states as states not the people in them. Maybe another way I could explain this just as a quick aside. When the senators were selected by the state legislatures or by the states, their allegiance was to those states, and that's who they represented when they went to Washington, D.C. When the 17th Amendment changed this, 
and the election of these senators was now done by the direct vote of the people. The allegiance of those senators did not suddenly go to the people of the states. It went to the federal government. That's what he's talking about. Judge Napolitano says part of James Madison's genius was the construction of the federal government as a three-sided table. The first side stood for the people, the House of Representatives. The second side stood for the sovereign states. That's the Senate. And the third side stood for the nation state, the presidency. The judiciary, whose prominent role today was unthinkable in 1789, was not a part of this mix. In his famous bank speech, Madison argued eloquently against legislation chartering a national bank because the authority to create a bank was not only not present in the U.S. Constitution, but was also retained by the states and reserved to them by the Tenth Amendment. In that speech, he warned that the creeping expansion of the federal government would trample the powers of the states and also the unenumerated rights of the people that the Ninth Amendment, his pride and joy because it protected natural rights, prohibited the government from denying or disparaging. Now, he gave that speech in February 1791. That's 11 months before the addition of the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution. Given the popular fears of a new central government, Madison assumed the Bill of Rights would be quickly ratified, and he was right. His bank speech remains just as relevant today. Had Madison been alive during the presidency of the anti-Madison Woodrow Wilson, who gave us World War I, the Federal Reserve, the administrative state, and the federal income tax, he would have recoiled at a president destroying the three-sided table. Wilson did that by leading the campaign to amend the Constitution so as to provide for the direct popular election of senators. Nor would Madison have stomached the efforts today by liberal Democrats to amend the Constitution to provide for the direct popular election of the president. Part of Madison's genius, says Napolitano, was to craft anti-democratic elements into the Constitution. And some of them, like retaining state sovereignty, created laboratories of liberty. Ronald Reagan reminded the American public in his first inaugural address that the states formed the federal government, not the other way around. Judge Napolitano says, had I been the scrivener of that speech, I'd have begged him to add, and the powers the states gave to the feds, they can take back. Reagan also famously said that we can vote with our feet. If you don't like the -the over-the-top regulations in Massachusetts, you can move to New Hampshire. If you're fed up with the highest state taxes in New Jersey, in the Union in New Jersey, you can move to Pennsylvania. But the more state sovereignty the feds absorb, the more state governance that is federalized. The fewer differences there are among the regulatory and taxing structures of the states. This has happened because Congress, sensing a popular majority, has become a general legislature without regard to the constitutional limits imposed on it. If Congress wants to regulate an area of human behavior that is clearly beyond its constitutional competence, it bribes the states to do so with borrowed or Federal Reserve-created cash. Thus, it offered hundreds of millions of dollars to the states to lower their speed limits on highways, to lower the acceptable blood alcohol level in people's veins. And this would truly have set Madison off, before a presumption of DUI may be argued in return for cash to pave state-maintained highways. Now, Napolitano says the states are partly to blame for this as well, because they take whatever cash Congress offers, they accept the strings that come with it, and they, too, are tyrants. The states mandated the unconstitutional and crippling lockdowns of 2020, not the feds. 
The states should be paying the political and financial consequences for their misdeeds, not the feds. They took property and liberty without paying for it as the Constitution requires them to do, not the feds. He says Bly's feared a government of 3,000. Today, the feds employ close to 3 million Thomas Jefferson warned that when the federal treasury becomes a federal trough and the people recognize it as such, they would send only to Washington politicians faithless to the Constitution who promise to bring home the most cash. And the majority will take whatever it wants from that minority that cherishes limited government, private property, and personal liberty. Good stuff, huh? There's a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Hey, good news. I'm calming down as I go on. Normally, I like to start calm and kind of build to a crescendo toward the end of the show. I think I got that reversed today. Nonetheless, I'm glad you joined us. So uh, I, I just saw a tweet from my friend John Miltimore, who is one of the editors for the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, John is just an amazing writer and has been an invaluable resource, particularly in keeping track of and making sense of some of the conflicting messages and narratives out there about, you know, COVID and lockdowns and so forth. He uh he actually had a really great take on what's making a lot of news headlines today, and that is, you know, I'm seeing a lot of news outlets reporting, well, the president has stepped forward and with the executive pen is implementing gun control measures. And so here's what, here was John's take. The headline reads, Biden administration announces executive action on gun control. But here's what the reality is. Biden administration announces executive action on gun control that everyone knows will have zero impact on gun violence, but will make half the country feel good. True. Very true. So let's talk a little bit about uh, why is it a big deal when a president signs, you know, executive orders trying to get this done or that done, but particularly as it applies to gun control. Now, I'm going to preface this with the understanding. I don't care where you stand on the issue of firearms ownership. So even if you're kind of a diehard supporter of gun control, there is a huge issue. This is a bigger issue in my mind when you have one branch of government seeking to exercise powers that it was never given. In other words, when the executive branch tries to act like it's a legislative branch, and we saw this happen in spades at the state level. When governors and some of their unelected but appointed bureaucrats started implementing uh, decrees and mandates that, uh, that carried the force of law. Yes, people taken away in handcuffs, people jailed, people written up and given citations because they were sitting in their cars watching the sunset or they took a walk when everybody was told stay home. But the legislatures never had passed a law regarding that policy. It was simply some executive fiat. Well, Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation, that's FFF.org, has a great write-up on Biden's and Trump's decree laws. So I've tried to explain before, this isn't just a feature of the Biden administration. In fact, one of our big uh, uh, precedents, which was just a couple of years ago, was following the Las Vegas massacre in 2017. Trump signed an executive order that effectively outlawed so-called bump stocks. 
That's been challenged in court. I believe it's been upheld. The courts are, are pretty deferential to these executive orders. In fact, uh, at least on, on some executive orders, um, it sounds like the Biden administration is writing them in such a way that uh, the courts are expected to believe this can never be changed. Thus shall it always be. So with a stroke of a pen, we can create something that can never be undone. I call baloney on that, but hey, I'm not, uh, I'm not wearing a black robe, am I? Here's what Jacob Hornberger says. He says the L.A. Times is reporting today President Biden plans to take executive actions to reduce gun violence. Another way to put that would be Biden plans to exercise dictatorial powers to reduce gun violence. Now, Jacob Hornberger reminds us in a representative democracy, the legislative branch of government enacts the laws and the executive branch of government enforces them. In a totalitarian-like dictatorship, the ruler bypasses or ignores or even abolishes the legislature and simply issues decrees that have the force of law. That's what executive actions or executive orders are all about. Not wishing to wait for Congress to act, the president simply issues edicts that have the force of law. In fact, let's let's talk about a classic example of this phenomenon. Uh, don't suppose you've heard of the military dictatorship of Chilean strongman General Augusto Pinochet. During his reign of power, he didn't have to wait for the legislative branch of government to act. He simply issued orders, which were called decree laws, because whatever he decreed automatically constituted the law. Now, the Constitution tried to protect the American people from dictatorial decrees. That was the idea behind the separation of powers. The Constitution set up a government in which Congress, not the president, would have the power to enact the laws. The president's power would be limited to enforcing laws enacted by Congress. Now, of course, this type of system doesn't guarantee freedom. It's entirely possible for Congress to enact laws that violate freedom. But it does serve as a protection of freedom by preventing the president from wielding the power of dictatorship. That is the power to issue decree laws. Unfortunately, Republicans lack moral standing to complain about any executive orders that Biden issues to clamp down on gun rights. That's because when Donald Trump was president, he himself ruled through decree laws with the full support of his conservative acolytes. One example was when Congress denied Trump the funds he was requesting to build his Berlin Wall along the border. Trump simply issued a decree law that enabled him to divert funds that Congress had allocated to the Pentagon for military purposes to the construction of his wall. Another example was the vicious and destructive trade war that Trump initiated against China. Trump didn't wait for Congress to enact legislation that authorized the imposition of tariffs on Chinese goods. He just issued decree laws that imposed such tariffs. Moreover, when American farmers began going broke as a result of his trade war with China, Trump simply issued decree laws establishing a welfare program for the farmers. So Jacob Hornberger says, thus, given the fact that they love a system of decree laws when they are in power, Republicans now lack standing when Biden starts doing it to them in order to restrict gun rights. It's called getting hoisted on your petard. But whether it's a Democrat or Republican president issuing the decrees, freedom suffers. So the bottom line here is a free society necessarily is one that bars any president from issuing and enforcing decree laws. As the framers understood, while such a prohibition is not a sufficient guarantee of freedom, it is a necessary prerequisite for freedom. 
I'll have a link to this in the show notes. If you haven't been to the Future of Freedom Foundation website, fff.org, this is yet another one of those great resources for wrong thinkers that I would strongly encourage you. Go on there, sign up for their emails. They send out to email six days a week. Actually, I think that the Saturday one's a repeat of Fridays, but to the bottom line is they have a number of great articles that will land right there in your inbox, and you can take a look. You don't have to read all of them, but you'd be wiser to at least read a few of them, or at least as many as you can. And it's not just Jacob Hornberger who contributes to them. They have uh, numerous other writers who contribute, and they they comb a number of different sources. I'm proud to say that uh, they've actually featured a couple of things that I've written over the years, and I... I'm very, very grateful for that. I feel like I'm hanging in good company here. All right. Another issue that has come up, and this is one that I know you may think I'm weird, but I'm one of those guys who actually kind of enjoys mowing the lawn. I don't know why. Um, for as much time as I spend talking, you know, I should be spending a lot of time thinking, too. And for some reason, I do my best thinking when I'm just trundling along there behind a lawnmower. I can't explain it. I don't know. I don't know why it is, but that's that's how I operate. For some reason, when I'm doing menial jobs that don't require a lot of thought, that's when I do some of my best organizing of my thoughts. So uh, when, when I think about how much I enjoy mowing and caring for my lawn, it's a little bit hard when I think, oh, man, I may have to rethink my stance on this. Because I read an essay from Thomas L. Knapp. This was from everythingvoluntary.com. And it's time to get government off our lawns. And until I read this, I don't think I had ever really contemplated just how much government has insinuated itself into even, yes, our yards. Thomas Knapp says it's spring. For many Americans, that means it's time to drag out the mower and trimmer, invest in various seeds, feeds, pesticides, etc., and quite possibly put the water bill on steroids with daily sprinkler operation. According to the American Time Use Survey, the average American spends 70 hours, that's nearly two full weeks of work, on lawn maintenance every year. Now, I have to say, you know, out of fairness, I have started deferring this to my boys I've got boys who are 15, 20, and 23 years old. So that's, that's a pretty good pool of talent. They're very able-bodied. They're, they're good. They have a great eye for uh, detail. And they make the yard look nice. So sometimes they get the benefit of, uh, you know, going along behind the mower. But 70 hours each year? Yeah, we do spend a fair amount of time. And, and Thomas Knapp points out the lawn is such a familiar part of everyday American life that it might seem it's the natural state of things. But in reality, it's evolved over the last two centuries from an aristocratic plaything to what the Washington Post uh, common colonist, sorry, columnist Christopher Ingram rightly calls a soul crushing time suck that most of us would be better off without. Now, I got to pick up on the other side of our break, but we're going to talk a little bit about how our lawns, yes, that thing that makes our yard look so beautiful and cool and appealing, is effectively a regressive tax scheme that benefits the sellers of expensive equipment and those who use that equipment in our stead if we can afford to hire them. All right. Brace yourself. If you love lawn mowing, I've got some tough news. I'll share it with you coming up here in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Well, if you stuck with me this far, I'm going to make it worth it for this last segment of today's program. I'm sharing an article from Thomas L. Knapp. Gleaned this off of everythingvoluntary.com. This is another one of those uh, news aggregators and commentary aggregators that uh, really has some just insightful commentary and and some really thought-provoking contributors. Thomas Knapp is one of them. The article's titled, Time to Get Government Off Our Lawns. And as you're out there working on your yard, next time you're mowing the lawn, maybe you should think about this. Where Where did the normalcy of having a lawn come from? Because for a long time... This was not the norm. Thomas Knapp explains lawns originated with the European nobility of the Middle Ages. In other words, people who owned plenty of land and could afford staff, assisted by large herds of sheep, to keep their grass cut short. By the 18th century, lawns were places for snobbish parties and social games like croquet and tennis. The first lawnmowers appeared in the 1830s. By the way, I think my parents grabbed one of those 1830 models when I was a teenager, uh, and my uh, brother-in-law ran over something with our power mower, and I got to experience the uh, real push mower experience. Oh, it's no, it gets worse. It wasn't just a real-type mower. It was uh, a rusty, wooden-handled one that gave you splinters every time you moved it. I know, I know. 20 miles to school in summer, heat through snow up to here, and uphill both ways. It, it just it really sucked mowing the lawn with it. That's all I can say. But to the first mowers appeared in the 1830s over the next century, culminating with the introduction of affordable gas powered push mowers. Lawns became increasingly popular with lower class imitators of the rich. But until after World War II, most of us regular people, even if we had houses, still didn't have lawns. What we had were yards. Yards were generally smaller. They were more likely to be bare dirt or vegetable garden than carefully manicured grass of a single species. Yards became lawns as they got bigger and as they became situated in the post-war cookie-cutter housing developments where developers or homeowner associations promoted property value-preserving uniformity. You had to have a lawn of St. Augustine grass kept to no more than three inches in height for the same reason you couldn't paint your house pink or put your old Chevy up on blocks in the driveway. Thomas L. Knapp says local governments, seeing an irresistible opportunity to pass new ordinances, took their cue from developers and HOAs and joyfully added lawn care to their already endless excuses for levying fines on the neglectful and recalcitrant. Now, the ill effects go beyond lost time, wasted money, and forced dealings with nosy bureaucrats. He says, in addition to reduced biodiversity, exacerbated by ordinances dictating a few types of acceptable lawn vegetation, that you, and the use of millions of pounds of unnecessary pesticides every year, Ted Steinberg tells us in American Green, the obsessive quest for the perfect lawn, our palsied hands spill 17 million gallons of gas, half again as much as the Exxon Valdez vomited onto Alaska's coastline in 1989, every single year while we're refueling lawn maintenance equipment. So he says, xeriscaping, ornamental and vegetable gardening are increasingly popular alternative approaches to yard use. But for those of us who really want to be done with lawns, an important first step is to get government off of them. Now, he's primarily talking local government or HOA government. So this this leads me in a couple of different directions. 
First of all, um, I understand, you know, HOAs are kind of a wonderful outlet to, for people who have that uh, that uh, busybody streak that they just want to be able to indulge. And heaven help you if you have any number of retired people as part of your homeowners association leadership. And I know I'm stereotyping here. Maybe this is unfair, but hell hath no fury like a retired person with time on their hands and a fine tooth comb with which to go over everything they don't like about your yard or the way you parked your car. I mean, I've, I've seen it to the point where, uh, for instance, a painter was fined by his homeowners association because he had all of his equipment in a work trailer, an enclosed work trailer. And they said, you can't have that work trailer visible when you park your car. So he was like, okay. He ended up parking it in the garage, still hooked to his truck. They would just lower the door so it blocked the view of the trailer with his logo on it. Nope, not good enough. I mean, if, if memory serves, this has been a few years, but I believe that homeowners association eventually drove this poor guy out of the neighborhood. Now, they were renting, but it was just that, that people couldn't stand the idea that, well, he's got a commercial vehicle in there, a commercial trailer, and it, they just, it didn't disrupt their neighborhood, but they sure felt like it did. I had a friend who lived there who, his car was leaking some oil. He found an oil leak, a couple of oil spots on his driveway. Bam! There's a letter on his front door. Your car is leaking oil that is against our homeowners, you know, rules and regulations. And You know, it's a problem, for sure, but it becomes an expensive problem and it becomes kind of a uh, an excuse for people to go out there and try to exercise authority, <clears throat> as they suppose it is, over other people. So... Um, you know, people say, well, you choose to live in a homeowner association. And that's true. You know, we often have choices, but somehow I'm not sure that that's the best defense I would want to offer for why it's OK for me to tell you what you can and cannot do with your own property. Well, you should have known that going in. And again, I'm going to ask, show me the social contract I signed that said this. Well, right here where you agreed to be part of our homeowners association. Can you really sign away your rights? Well, apparently a lot of people think so. All right. That's one reason. So choose carefully. If you if you don't like being told what you can and cannot do with your own property, probably best to avoid an HOA. And by the way, my wife was president of the HOA that we lived in at one point. And even with her in a position of authority, it still pretty much sucked. She didn't like all the decisions she was forced into because it's such a great outlet for busybodies. Now, here's the second reason why I like Thomas L. Knapp's take on maybe it's time to think about something as an alternative to just simply growing the most beautiful manicured lawn possible. Xeriscaping is nice from the standpoint of it uh, saves water. Often it'll be a little more compatible with whatever the natural environment is where you live. Uh, sometimes people can do some really amazing things with rocks, with water features and so forth. So, you know, don't rule out that there are some alternatives that, that would be really great. But the one that makes a lot of sense to me is vegetable gardening. And it's telling that in some places you can actually find yourself crosswise, not just with a homeowners association, but actually with your municipal government. If you, for instance, uh, say, I'm tired of pouring all this water onto my lawn. I think what I would like to do is instead plant a garden, maybe build raised garden beds and, you know, grow more of my own food. And in some states, they are just adamant that, nope, you can't do that. That is an eyesore. I think we may be approaching a point in time 
where people who have the capacity to grow and produce more of their own food are going to be a lot happier and a lot better fed than people who don't. Make of that what you will. I'm really not trying to sow seeds of fear, but I am I'm looking at some of the things that I see taking place right under our noses and I see incredible economic difficulty ahead if we continue on the course that we're on right now. And it's not just, you know, because our currency is being devalued. It's not just because inflation is starting to catch up. It also has to do with the fact that there are a number of different uh, natural disasters and some man-made disasters that are threatening the food supply, which everybody takes for granted. You know, we go to the grocery store. We don't really think, how did it get from the farm to here? But those who do think about such things are warning you could be looking at very high priced food if it's even available. And this is true in Europe. It's true here as well. We're just very spoiled and we think nah, that could never happen. I had some friends who uh, both were retired. I think they were both teachers, but they retired with their home and they actually built uh, what they called an edible Landscape, meaning they planted fruit and nut trees. They planted um, herbs that they could use, you know, in their cooking. They planted berry bushes. They planted an incredible garden. They actually built a little greenhouse there on their property. They had chickens. They had bees. And I think that uh, they told me that at one point they were getting about 70% of the food that they consumed from what they could produce right there in their own yards. I don't know if that strikes you as remarkable as, as it does me, but... I think that's that's the kind of example I would like to emulate. It's not going to be feasible for everybody. In fact, some apartment dwellers are already breathing a sigh of relief. Oh, well, at least I don't have to worry about mowing the lawn or taking care of the yard. But if you have a yard, if you have the capacity to grow more of your own food, I'm thinking that uh, that's going to be something that will pay off dearly in the days ahead. And what you don't necessarily have to use for your own use, you could uh, potentially use for barter. And maybe get some things that you need from other people who are needing it. Just planting ideas, pun intended. But these are the kind of things that uh, would be well to think about right now while you still have some alternatives. Okay, that's going to do it for today. Thanks again for joining us. Please subscribe to the podcast. Consider becoming a regular supporter of The Brian Hyde Show. Instructions are there at my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.